You're listening to R&B's On The Verge podcast series, where we look at disruption through the lens of opportunity. My name is Willem van der Post, and this is the R&B On The Verge series, where we take a look at disruption, but through the lens of opportunity. And joining me today is Arif Ismail from the South African Reserve Bank FinTech Unit. Welcome, Arif. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, such an interesting person to meet because uh, of late in South Africa, the South African Reserve Bank has been in the news. Right. And I think, Joe, everyone has had way more engagement with the acronym. But what does the Saab actually do? Yeah. Talk us through that. Yeah, what do great, you do in great, the country? Great question. I think what's interesting is it's not one singular thing, right? But let me keep it simple. So what does the Saab do? I think we're responsible primarily for ensuring price stability of the RAND and, of course, financial stability of the financial ecosystem. What that means simply for the, for the man in the street yes. is that if you're using your RAND to purchase goods and services, the value of that RAND gives you the biggest bang for buck. Okay? In other words, the purchasing power that you have of the RAND is what we try and protect. Right. monetary policy. So that monetary policy, without getting into too fine a granularity, what are the main variables that you exercise control over, such as to fulfill this function? Yeah, so I, I think a, a fundamental aspect of it would be um, the managing inflation. Right. Right. So what that would mean is that a basket of goods that cost you X uh, amount today should not increase beyond a certain percentage over, over time. Um, and, and that's what we manage, right? The other thing that we manage is, of course, the um, the stability of the financial system. So that means regulating banks, yes. monitoring quite closely the amount of credit, as an example, that banks would issue to the public. And and that's pretty much what, what we do. And, and another good example, maybe to make it simpler, right, um, for the man in the street, is what does the South African Reserve Bank do? Of course, we produce banknotes and, and, and coins, right? And that's how people engage and understand um, what the Saab is to them. We're the producers of money. So the 10 rand in my pocket comes from a production line administered by the Saab. Uh, the 10 rand in your pocket, yes. <laughs> right. Okay, great. So now then, uh, you are in the fintech unit. Now, what does everything you've just said have to do with a fintech unit? What's that about? Abs- absolutely. So, so you, you know that innovation in banking has always been there, right? You know, I thought we talked about the 10 rand note. And then if you think of how money has evolved, you don't just use a 10 rand note anymore, right? You use your card, your yes. bank card, credit card, debit card. You use internet banking and, and so on. So innovation's always been there. What makes fintech different is that it's innovation, as I would call it, unusual. It's innovation that we've not seen before. So it's not the, it's not the traditional innovation, not ATMs and card and, and, and internet banking or mobile banking. It's examples like crypto assets and initial coin offerings and peer-to-peer lending. So no longer do I need to go into my bank and borrow money. I can borrow money from the internet. Alternative sources. Alternative sources. Right. Right. So what makes fintech different is it's innovation that's being produced through non-traditional means. It doesn't have to be banks and insurance firms and financial institutions that are producing these innovations. It could be small-scale startups Right, technology firms that are now beginning to pr- produce 
um, financial products and services. Okay, so we're now going beyond the scope, in other words, of traditional banking financial services into uncharted territory. Yeah. And that falls under a division that you look after yes. at the Saab, which yes. is now the fintech division. A- absolutely. Right. And, and, and what we make clear is that we're not the regulators. We're actually the coordinators or the facilitators. Now, you might want to ask why. Yes. Why do you need this fintech unit? You've got the regulators there. I think the type of innovations that we're seeing are challenging to the policies and the regulatory frameworks that we've had in place. So you need an entity that kind of comes together and coordinates between the various departments of the Saab, but equally so involves all the other regulators, like the National Treasury, the Financial Sector Conduct Authority, the National Credit Regulator, etc. The question is, how do we get our minds around whether our policies and regulatory frameworks are appropriate yes. for the type of innovations that we now see. So I have a question there, because <clears throat> if I look at another disruptive technology, perhaps not in financial services, let's call it drones. Right. And my drone flies into civil aviation airspace. There is a danger that it can collide with other airplanes, and so that authority body needs to produce some regulation to yeah. help uh, with safety concerns in that yeah. space. Now... You mentioned cryptocurrency. Is that the drone of the financial services space? And is that why you're talking about regulation to something which really actually is outside of the scope of what traditional financial services is all about? I think I've never heard that type of uh, analogy uh, before. That's a fantastic fantastic example. I would say exactly that. So if you think of something like, let's use the drone as a as a means of um, unpacking crypto, yes. right? So if you think of the drone, you know, for the, the usual air traffic controllers, the regulators, right, who look at planes flying in and out, they're used to seeing these big jumbo jets and, you know, v- um, passenger carriers and, and, and so on. And suddenly you've got this, this drone. H- how do you define it? What, what exactly is it? Is it a passenger aircraft? Is it self-operated? So, do so I need a license Do you need it? a license a so it should be ignored? You know, what, what are the risks related to yes. it? Could there be benefits for the, for, the, you know, for the jumbos coming in? It gives it particular information. Scare off the birds. A- a- absolutely. Right. right? So, so for us, you know, if you think of the, if the drone as being crypto, how do you define it? Is it currency? Is it money? Is it an asset? Is it a payment instrument? And therefore, you need a fintech unit Okay, an entity that's pulling together the various regulators to kind of make sense of this new drone. Right. Okay, so this is, this is alien territory and we now don't have regulation, so there's an absence yes. of regulatory frameworks. And so you're helping to define those. Absolutely. Okay, so then the question that a lot of people will have, I think, I certainly have it, is if I convert my wealth into a digital token or a cryptocurrency, there's nothing stopping me from moving that cross-border. Yes. But we're all familiar with the fact that Saab has got some pretty uh, clearly defined exchange controls. And now how do those two reconcile with one another? And is there an intersection? Yes. So I would think the first thing that we've got to clarify as regulators, and we're in the process of doing that, is what do we mean by this, by this new innovation, this new instrument? And I think the thing that we've become extremely clear about, not just locally, but even abroad, is that this certainly is not legal tender, right? So that means in simple English that if you pitch at ShopRite Checkers, are they forced by law to accept the particular token? The answer is no. So it's not legal tender. We're equally clear that this is not currency, okay? So this is not a, uh, this is not money issued by authority or decree 
in uh, of a p- particular sovereign. Okay, what's the what's the consequence of what you've just said? It's not yeah. legal tender. We right. understand that the f- shops are not forced to accept yeah. as a payment payment methodology. Arif, so uh, we understand that when it's not legal tender, you can't force a shop yeah. or a merchant to to accept, to accept cryptocurrency that. as yeah. a method of payment. Right. But when you say it is not a currency, what does right. what does that actually mean? Right. So let, let me we call un- it a cryptocurrency. Yeah. Let, let let me unpack that for you. Right. So what what would a what would a legal currency be? Right. A legal currency is something that's decreed by a particular sovereign. Like in South Africa, it's decreed by the president and the national treasury and the minister of finance. And in our country, we know that we can use rands right, to trade. Yes. Can you use dollars to trade? Can you use euros to trade? The answer is no. Well, informally, yes, but legally, no. Yes, legally, no. Right. right? So the, the reason why we don't think of this as cryptocurrency is that it's not currency that's issued by decree or by fiat. Right by a particular sovereign. If if I unpack that a little more technically, right, we normally think of currencies as being three particular, having three particular characteristics: a store of value, right, like the rand has a as a particular store of value. You can compare it to other stores of value, like how does the rand compare with the dollar? Yes, it has. Um, a, it it can be used as a medium of exchange. You know, as you pointed out, I can pitch at a shoprite checkers, and I can give in my rands for goods and services, and it flags prices in the market. Like when you pitch in the, st- in the shop, when you're trying to figure out how much that box of Kellogg's costs, when you look at it, it doesn't say 10 butter, it says 10 rands, right? So money typically issued by a sovereign has those three qualities. It's a good, stable store of value. In other words, the value does not fluctuate vol- in a volatile manner. Right. Right. So, not so, really. so today I come in, uh, you know, and the bread costs me 20 rand. Uh, tomorrow I come in and the bread costs me 40 rand. Okay, it has a stable store of value. Right. Right. It can be accepted as a medium of exchange, the money. Right. I can pitch and the storekeeper will accept it. And the prices of goods and services are priced in that particular money. Now, if you think of crypto, right, is it a good store of value? Well, due to the volatility of some of the currencies, one would argue that it's not. It's it's not a good store of value. Is it a good medium of exchange, Willem? So can you can you pitch in Shoprite checkers and they accept your crypto? So I don't think you can do it in Shoprite, but there are merchants globally that yes. do accept cryptocurrencies, in yep. particular Bitcoin. So right. I would say early days, right? But probably in the long run, yes, potentially. Well, right. potentially is a better potentially, word. Potentially, yes. right? And and do you see? Prices of goods and services being flagged, okay, being priced. In, I, I don't know of anyone that's earned their right. salary or paid off a yeah. mortgage in yeah. crypto. I'm, I'm told that New Zealand's about to do that, but we'll we'll have to wait and see. Right, <laughs> right. right. Well, bringing New Zealand in is interesting because if this is the view locally, how do we compare in our maturity around these fintech considerations globally? I think I think we compare very well. So if you think of what the other regulators are doing, and you look at what the South African Reserve Bank and the other regulators collaboratively are trying to put in place, we compare fairly well. Let me use three examples. So the first one is, if you look at other jurisdictions like the United Kingdom and the Financial Conduct Authority, they've put together what you would have heard called a sandbox. Yeah, let, 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 me, let me unpack it in a broader concept. So I'll call it an innovation hub. Let's, let's right. start there. So what, what is an innovation hub? I would argue an innovation hub for the South African jurisdiction would likely comprise three elements. The first one is what we're calling a regulatory guidance unit. In simple English, Willem, 
if you're an innovator, an incumbent, or a fintech firm, you could come to the regulator and get advice on your innovation. What do I need to comply with? What laws? What regulations? What directives? And the benefit for the for the for the innovator is that you get you get non-binding legal advice, and you quickly figure out. Hold on, this is what I need to comply with. For the regulator, well, that's wonderful because this is such an opaque industry with so many different pieces of regulation that that kind of guidance actually can put you forward as your entrepreneurial venture by years. Absolutely, that's wonderful. Absolutely. Right. Okay. Now, now you might want to ask, well, why did we not have this before? Why do we need it now? And the answer to that is. You know, before, if you think of financial services, the participants who would innovate and produce services are typically the incumbents, yes. not ri- rightfully or wrongfully. It's banks, insurance companies, credit providers, etc. Now you've got these new tech entities coming in Small, and producing. nimble, fast-moving. Fast-moving. Highly funded. Right? Hi- yes, highly funded, minimum resources, agile. Yes. Right? Do they understand the law? The answer is likely n- not too much. Okay, what this capability then does is provides a mechanism, a medium, all right, for innovators to come in and understand the law. To your point, it shouldn't be opaque. However, having said that, all right, our mantra is if it's a particular activity, let's say it's payments or lending or insurance, right, we, we say same activity, same risks, same rules need to apply, hmm. all right? So it's fair on both the innovator that's coming in, the as fintech well as, firms, the as well as the incumbent. And for that matter, the consumer who ultimately is going Absolutely. to be faced with dealing with these products and services. A- Absolutely. So that's the regulatory guidance unit. That's that's part of the hub, right? The we sandbox. still. The, uh, I'll get to the sandbox. Oh, right, I'll right. get to the sandbox. These, these terms can be confusing. So um, um, in, in the innovation hub, you would then have this regulatory guidance unit. Now, as an innovator, would you like to meet all the regulators in one go? Um, or would you like to meet them on an ongoing basis, all separately? I probably need some ongoing meetings, but I would imagine that as a starting point, it would be a good thing to get yeah. them all together. Absolutely, right? So you would battle. You meet one regulator, then they give you a view, then you meet another regulator, then they give you another view. Yes. right? So what this regulatory guidance unit ideally would be is a one-stop shop. So you can pitch, you can pitch what your innovation is all about, and you should get guidance coordinated by all the regulators. Now, you asked, how do we compare with other jurisdictions? I would argue modestly that I think South Africa would probably be one of the first in the world to institute a one-stop shop, okay? A guidance unit where you can come in and you can dialogue with the regulators and you can get your answers over time in a coordinated and harmonized manner. And I I think we would then compare very well with, with what some of the other jurisdictions are putting out. So those other jurisdictions cover a lot of scope. In India, crypto, for instance, I know that's not the only fintech, but yes. crypto has been banned. I think there's jail sentences associated with trading in crypto. Right. And other places like Estonia that have tokenized title deeds to allow for real estate transactions to happen in sure. real time. So there's super pro and super negative. Where where are we? Right. I would I would say in terms of um, the continuum, you know, of being extremely risk averse and cautious versus being extremely laser fair. Strangely enough, I think we're in the Goldilocks zone. We're in the middle, right? We're neither neither extremely averse nor extremely um, extremely uh, laser fair, very open, yes. right? And and the just reason, right. the reason, just right. And the reason we're very balanced in our approach to fintech. And the reason for that is that we don't think of fintech as being the tech that 
the, the tech stuff. So it's not AI, blockchain, machine learning, big data, right? We don't think of fintech as even being the small-scale startups, the firms. We think of fintech as being the innovations. And for that reason, right, we, we think of the economic function that the particular innovation is addressing. So when we look at an innovation, we'll say, what is this thing? Is it deposit? Is it savings? Is it lending? Is it insurance? Is it investments? And for that reason, because it's an activity-based approach, I would say we're in the middle, in the Goldilocks zone. When we look at it, we will then say, what are the risks that this particular innovation has? How does it compare to similar um, products and services? And then what are the rules that need to apply? And I would, I would say that the reason why we're probably also quite balanced is that whatever rules we put in place must be proportionate must be purposive, must be smart regulation, mm. right? I think it's such a uh, tough balance to maintain between an innovation curve that is aggressive, but a governance curve that protects civil society that is also not too aggressive. And it's it, from what you're saying, it sounds like the, at least the paradigm and the philosophy at the SARB is is very pro both of those. Yes. C can I go back, Willem? So we, we started talking about we started talking about guidance units, right? I just want to complete the loop. So. You know, again, I, I, I emphasize that in the innovation hub, there's these three core capabilities. We talked about the guidance unit. And then you prompted, what's the sandbox, right? Now, based on this dialogue, I would say that what a regulatory sandbox is, is as you're getting guidance on your particular innovation, let's assume, right, that some of the innovation doesn't fit neatly within the regulatory framework. It's a drone, as you would call it, Right. How do you it's think not aircraft, it's not an aircraft? It's not, it's not, it's not yeah. a toy remote control. Abs absolutely. How so what you, is it? Right. So what do, you, what do you do? It doesn't fit neatly. Yes. Right? Now, the temptation in the past would be to say, pause on the regulation as regulators. Do not proceed until we're clear about what the regulatory frameworks are. What a sandbox does is it says, Mr. Innovator, Mrs. Innovator, right? you could go ahead with your innovation with very specific conditions, maybe limits on the number of customers that you could offer this to. And over a period of time, we'll grant you the opportunity of continuing with the innovation whilst we apply our mind to what policies and regulatory frameworks need to apply. Now, of course, for something like this, we have to be extremely clear about what the entry criterion is, what the participation criterion is, and of course, what the exit criterion is for a sandbox. But that's something that I think that would benefit South Africa tremendously and I think compares extremely well to what's happening in some of the other jurisdictions. Okay, so now let's go a little bit uh, into, the, into the depths of unknown. I'm going right. to curveball here. So I'd been involved in a conversation of launching a new cryptocurrency exchange. Right. And obviously the on-ramp to utilizing the goods and services of the exchange would be banks to exchange fiat for crypto. And I had a conversation with a Silicon Valley individual who's in a race with Facebook and SpaceX right. to put enough satellites around the planet, such as to provide high bandwidth internet connection to 100% of the square inches of the planet. Right. So in my conversation, I'm articulating that different regulatory and jurisdictional approaches towards things like cryptocurrency and fintech right. may or may not be preclusive. And I wonder where the best jurisdiction is to put this exchange. And the individual said to me, I think you're thinking too small. Why don't you put it on our satellite network? And then it is off planet. Right. Because what regulation <laughs> applies there? And so an interesting thing uh, Inside right. of this space of unknown and fintech and where regulation doesn't necessarily grasp the essence of the concept, do you see borders 
yep. becoming a bit more blurred as wealth can move more freely in a tokenized form. Uh, and perhaps the, the, the population at large uh, in the world, there have been instances around the revolting against too tight a regulation, whether accurate or not in its perception. So what would happen if we put a crypto exchange on a satellite network? Who, who governs that? How yeah. do we as a global society approach something like this if we zoom out of South Africa for a second? Yeah, I, I think on your, on your thought on becoming more borderless, right? I would, I would tend to agree with you that for all aspects of society, right, we're, we're, we're beginning to overcome the, the borders. If I think of just making friends on Facebook or other social media platforms, I can make friends with anyone in the world. I can communicate with anyone in the world. Yes. I do that in real time. I do that on demand. I do that through my mobile device. Yes. I do that in the morning, the evening, and during supper time. You know, when I think about a borderless society and I think of financial services, you know, I can probably envision a time when we would be able to acquire services from anywhere in the world. Whoever can provide me the best service, the best bang for buck, at my fingertips, on demand, through my mobile device, right, I would predict that that's the world that we would most likely get mm. to o over, over long periods of time. I'm already feeling the tremors of that coming on. Right. Away. You know, as, as I mean, that sounds really great. I can purchase something from anywhere in the world. I can pay anyone in real time, you know, in a matter of seconds, removing the frictions, etc. You would agree with me, though, right, that the risks that are inherent in financial services, such as money laundering risks, consumer protection risks, right, the risk of my money being stolen by unsavory characters, right, illicit activities, um, you, you'd agree with me that although we would move likely towards a borderless world, a, a frictionless world, some elements of regulation would still need to apply. The question that you're asking, yeah, the safeguarding would still need to apply, right? The question then is, who would do that? Yes. Right? If your crypto platform is sitting on a satellite and it's not, and those are tough questions to answer. Not terra firma. Yeah, those are tough questions to answer, but it's stuff that we must traverse, right? Right. In and, a sandbox and In a sandbox, in a guidance unit, you know, and, and maybe it's not a maybe it's not a domestic guidance unit. I mean the Bank for International Settlements, this is the central bank of central banks, has been talking about an innovation lab, an innovation hub that could be global, right? And it might and take some sense, guidance from and, us. And and absolutely. And and that might that might you know, that might be the way that we that we traverse this journey. That's wonderful. I mean, I just love when we explore these unexplored. If you, if you want to further this, uh, without getting ridiculous, if Musk gets his way and we colonize another planet, we're going to have the same type of regulatory framework concerns, but then it will be not intercontinental, intercountry. It will be yeah. interplanetary. Ab absolutely. Are we going to have a galaxy uh, <laughs> reserve bank? You know, so there are interesting things on our way. Closer to home, though. Right. Uh, what about digitizing the RAND? Is right. that going to happen? Has that already yeah. happened? What's yeah. the sob view? Right. So this is a tricky question, right? So if you think of digitizing the RAND, take cash out of it, right? How do you pay others? Let's say you're buying on Amazon. How do you pay? Typically credit card, I would imagine. Right. Is that like physical paper or is it digital? 
Oh, uh, digital, uh, digital. I would, I would imagine. Right. It's all it's digital. It's all. You click some buttons and, and off it. it goes. Right. There we go. Digital. Um, absolutely, it's digital. So, so the, the so I would argue that we have to be quite careful that we do have digital currency, digital rands in bank accounts that we move around. Right. So when you ask, would we see a digital rand? I say a digital rand is already there. Right. Now, if you think of it, right, customers put their money in banks and then you can move it around digitally. But banks equally put money with a central bank. Right. Customers don't have access to those funds in a central bank except through cash. Right. Banks put large value monies with a central bank. And the reason for that is to move around high value payments. Right. What a digital RAND, I suspect your question is, what a digital RAND issued by the central bank could mean for citizens, right, would be the equivalent of digital cash, right? It's still, and forgive the technicality, a liability sitting on the balance sheet of a central bank, but in the hands of a consumer. Could we see that happen, right? I think a number of jurisdictions are now trialing with something called a central bank-issued digital currency. And my own argument is that I think it's more than just about the technology, right? It's more than just about whether I've got it on my mobile phone, whether I can exchange it peer-to-peer with Willem, right? The question that we've got to start, or many questions that we've got to start pondering on is what would this mean for the financial ecosystem in totality? So today you put your funds with a bank, Willem, right? And the benefit of that is, apart from accruing a little bit of interest, you can borrow money from the bank, right? The funds that banks take in, right, help them price the price of credit, right? What happens now if a central bank issues this digital cash and the funds no longer sit with commercial banks? What would that mean for the ecosystem in totality? So I think something like a digital RAND is something that we must, we must think about. Other countries are thinking about it. But we must be very clear about two things. We must be clear about the policy imperative to mm. issue such an instrument. What problem are we solving for? And is the central bank best placed to solve that problem? And secondly, what are the intended and unintended consequences, policy consequences of such an issuance? And I think those are difficult, difficult dialogues that need to be traversed. So if, if we then extend on that dialogue, there are already rumors in the markets about companies that traverse jurisdictions and borders, global companies like Facebook, right. talking about introducing currencies such as Libra, right. a, a, a digital currency, so not digital cash like on my, on my uh, credit card, actual tokenized money right. on a blockchain right. uh, that would be available to their consumers to transact in. Right. Uh, across multiple jurisdictions tethered to the dollar in right. value. Right. So we're already at that space where companies are starting to have this conversation, right? I think JP Morgan is putting out a coin right. or at least started speaking about that. Right. So it's it's not just between countries. It's between also regulators of countries and multinational corporations. Right. How are we going to keep up? This seems to be going so quickly. Can Absolutely. you make policy that fast? That's a, that's a great question. Can we make policy that fast? I think I think normally... You know, robust policymaking requires careful thinking around risks and benefits and trade-offs and, and, and so on, right? I would, I would argue that as we, see, as we see efforts like Libra, 
as an example, or even JP Morgan coin. I think the Libra one's interesting because it immediately you kind of go, hold on, 2.5 billion users. You know, if the uptake is is even 10%, what does that look like for the world, etc.? I would think that what this means for policymaking is that it would it would need regulators from across jurisdictions, okay, to coordinate, collaborate, to apply their minds to these particular innovations in a balanced manner, a lot more and a lot more faster yes. in their in their approaches. So I would think that the value of these innovation hubs, be they domestic or regional or global, um, are efforts from regulators to try and counter um, not the pace of change, but the speed with which we yes. make policies. It introduces nimbleness within your skill set, yes. something that is now of paramount importance yep. given the rate of exponential yep. change. You'd agree, though, you'd agree, though, Willem, that um, modestly, the regulators will, will attempt to make their policy making and regulatory making as quick as possible. We will always, though, be behind the innovation curve. You, you'd have to agree with that. Yeah. Innovation we'll happens at a, at, at a pace and a scale and a scope far faster than policy making or, re, or, or regu regulatory, uh, regulatory making. I think it is of critical importance for civil society to understand the friendliness that the Saab have towards innovation and that the efforts of sandboxing and the like actually constitute proactive steps to not only stimulate economic growth and protection of the RAND, but entrepreneurship in itself. Um, and there's a lot of criticism against government's uh, slow pace of adjusting and uh, uh, proactive serving of the community. This is a wonderful example of the contra to the populist opinion out there. Abs absolutely. I think it's Abs super positive. Absolutely. I, I think, I mean, one, one of the benefits that could come from this process, right, is that even the regulators might put out a set of problem statements that we're passionate about seeing resolving, right? Deepening, deep, deepening financial inclusion, you know, reducing the, the, the you know, the uh, um, uh, increasing the efficiency of financial services, etc. I would see that these processes could be where we put out problem statements, you know, and fintech firms and incumbents can respond to them. So I would agree with you. I think that th this is extremely positive. I really love what you've just said because in the exploration of what constitutes a exponential organization vis-a-vis -vis an enterprise or body that is able to rapidly respond to market changes and in fact stimulate it is the ability to tap into society at large, the crowd if you like, right. and be able to source solutions for problems that the crowd itself faces. Yes. Being the mediator of a solution to entrepreneur. I think that's that's super progressive. I'm I'm very happy that we had had this conversation. Ab absolutely. And I, and I want to bleed out by asking you. So, with all of this in mind, this canvas that we've now painted. Right. What does the future of banking look like? Ah, fantastic question. What What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I think you should answer it without asking a question. <laughs> all right. I tell you, that's that's not an easy one to to kind of answer. It's very broad. Right. So so if you look into the into the crystal ball and you kind of think of what could the financial services ecosystem look like in, in let's say, 10 years from now? Maybe I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm just going to go backwards for a second. If I had to sit back and think about the last 10 years, if I was at 2008 or 2009, could I have ever predicted some of the things that we're seeing in today's world? Peer-to-peer -peer insurance, robo-advice, high-frequency trading. I mean, it, it, it's extremely difficult to kind of map forward, right? I would go out on a limb, though, and, and make the following... Uh, kind of claims. I would think, one, we'd see many more competitors, right, um, providing financial services as we have today, right? Some of these competitors may not be the traditional incumbents that we've seen. They may be 
as you captured, uh, you know, uh, uh, sources like uh, social media platforms, Facebook, you know, Alipay and, 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 and so on. I would also say that I would think that we are moving into the space of absolutely real time. Everything's going to happen in real time, right? And that um, everything that we would desire would be at our fingertips. Um, I would also think that, you know, consumers would have a lot greater choice, you know, um, the ability of doing things, almost everything through your mobile device, online, you know, and, and I think it's going to be an exciting world, you know, a much more uh, a market that's composed of many different players, less concentrated, more competitive. Well, there you have it. The future of financial services, real time, serviced by a variety of different players, probably offering great price value to consumers who yeah. are able to choose from them, right. inspired and in fact facilitated by the South African Reserve Bank. Arif, wonderful chatting with you. Thanks very Excellent. much for joining. You've been listening to RB's On the Verge podcast series. For more solutionist thinking, visit the RB website.